Jonah chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter, verse 1 to 10. Okay. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So, Noah, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this perfect opportunity to come before your throne and to learn from you. We pray that our hearts will be open to your truth this morning that your, your spirit would uh, illumine us with your truth and, Lord, the words of life. We just pray that uh, we'd be ready to receive them and that you would use me as an instrument in your hands. Lord, we just thank you once again for the blessing of having your word, that we might come together in this freedom that we have. I pray that we never take it for granted. May the name of Jesus be lifted up in this service this morning, we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at Jonah, and for those of you who haven't, uh, haven't been here for a little while or are visiting the first time, we've been working through the book of Jonah. And most of you know the, the, uh, the story of Jonah, that uh, God told Jonah to go and, 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 uh, and preach to the people of Nineveh because they were doing some pretty terrible things and, and to tell them that he was about to destroy their city if they didn't repent. Jonah, the good prophet that he was, said, nah, I'm going the other way. So he ran away from where God told him to go in the exact opposite direction, jumped onto a ship the first chance he had and started sailing in the opposite direction. Well, as it happened, God decided otherwise, knew where Jonah was going and caused a storm to occur. So much so that the ship was about to break up. And then it was discovered that Jonah, to all the other people on that ship, had disobeyed God. And as a result of, of that, Jonah said, look, it's my fault. This is all my doing. God told me to go and do something. I've gone and done something else. So throw me overboard. And that will uh, sort things out. So they threw Jonah overboard. God, Jonah probably thought that he was about to die. God had other intentions though. God prepared a fish or a whale which swallowed Jonah and then brought Jonah back to land in the right direction. And we saw last week that in the fish, in the, the heart of that, uh, of that animal, after three days he'd been in there, Jonah prayed this prayer of um, thanksgiving. He knew that God had saved him. He could have let Jonah drown and said, no, that's it for you, Jonah. You've messed up. I'm going to get someone else to do this business now. And I'm going to let you die. Instead, God sent the fish, saved Jonah, and Jonah prayed this beautiful prayer that... that really became a reflection or became a parallel passage to Jesus rising again from the grave. And we looked at there a number of parallels between Jonah being in the fish three days and Jesus being in the grave three days. And, and Jesus himself said that his resurrection was, uh, uh, was sorry, that Jonah's um, uh, being in the fish for three days was a sign of his resurrection. And that would be the signal that the, that the Jews would get. Now, we see now in this passage, and we notice that there's another similarity today we're going to find out between Jonah and Jesus. You see, as soon as Jonah walked to Nineveh, and he walked in it, one day's journey it says, 
the first message he preaches, the first words he says are, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, which means Nineveh will be destroyed by God. His call to the city was to do what? To repent of their sins. Otherwise, God would judge them for their sin. God was giving them a chance. Do you know what, what the first message Jesus gave when he came back from 40 days in the wilderness? Repent. After Jesus had been baptised by John the Baptist, he spent, most of us know, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. When he came out from that wilderness, when he had gone through that particular ordeal, um, as soon as he returned, he began to preach a message which was, you can find it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was a very similar message to Jonah. Repent, because God is coming. In fact, God was at the door. Today we're going to look at this idea of repentance. We're going to look at what repentance actually is. And we're going to see through the people of Nineveh, through a, um, a Gentile nation, what repentance is really all about. We're going to find and going to dig a bit more into, into what they did and how it was preached. So today we're going to look at another similarity between the message Jesus preached and does it, how does it fit in the gospel today? Is there room for repentance in the gospel? Or is the gospel simply about believing? Is there a difference? Let's go. Let's start from the beginning of, uh, of Jonah. Let's look at uh, what God says. Verse 1 says, And the, Lord, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know something else I noticed straight away from this passage? Is it's almost exactly the same style and the same things at the beginning. God said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh and preach to them that which I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Or that, will, uh, that which will I'll tell you. And here we find the same sort of passage, the same wording. It said this time, it says, The word of God came unto Jonah the second time. And Jonah, instead of running away, this time he went the right way. He decided to obey. He arose and went straight to Nineveh just as he was told. And then he preached to the Ninevites exactly what God told him to preach. Let me ask you a question. Had Jonah changed his opinion about the Ninevites? No. You see... Jonah disobeyed the first time because he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want God to give them a chance to repent. He wanted them destroyed. He wanted God to wipe them off the face of the earth because they were a nasty bunch of people. Now this time, he decides to obey. The question is, has he changed his mind about the Ninevites? The answer is exactly no. He still doesn't like the Ninevites. He still would rather for God to destroy them. The only difference we find now is that he decides to obey God, despite what he's thinking. There's a couple of lessons I want us to learn from this particular, these first four verses. The first lesson I want us to understand is that God is often found to be the God of the second chance. God gives us second chances. And that's, that's good for us. Because... I don't get everything right the first time. I'm not sure about you. Sometimes I don't get things right the first time God asks me to do them. Sometimes I go the other way. Sometimes I ignore him altogether. But I'm glad that God gave me a second chance. You see, it took me 10 years to get saved. 10 years of preaching, 10 years at least, of listening and rejecting. Listening and saying, not my time, listening and turning the other way and deciding to live my own life. So I'm glad that God gives second chances. And in the Bible, we actually find God giving people a lot of second chances. You know, Abraham, the father of faith, God gave him a few chances, didn't he? Hmm. There were certain times when he decided to, that lying would be better than telling the truth. 
And he lied about his own wife to get himself out of trouble because he was scared about a situation. Rather than trusting God, he thought, hmm, I'm going to rely on my own imagination and my own wisdom. I'm going to lie and say that my wife is really my sister. He nearly got himself in really big trouble. God gave him another chance. He didn't give up on him. We find the same with Moses. Did Moses say, yes, Lord, as soon as you called me, yes, I'm the right man for the job? No. Moses had a lot of problems going on in his life. First of all, he said, no, I'm, I'm not the person you want. I can't talk. Did God say, nah, that's it for you. You're finished. No more chances for you. I'm going to go to your, your brother Aaron. No, he actually works with Moses and says, all right, well, Aaron's going to do your talking. You're going to do the displaying. When it came time to, to um, uh, circumcise his son, Moses' wife didn't want to do it. God was about to kill him. Did God kill him? No. God gave him another chance. David, King David, he messed up some big time during his reign as king. Did God strip him of his kingdom as, as king because he messed up? He actually didn't. I mean... There was one particular sin, and, and most of us understand that he committed adultery, right? But that sin involved so many of the sins. That sin involved the purposeful, the purposeful killing of her husband. Murder. He murdered. He had someone murdered so he could be with his wife. Now, that's a huge one. A lot of us like to grade sins like that. Did God give up on David? He punished David. He didn't give up on him. God is a God of the second chance. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever known God telling you something, either through his word or through direct saying, I want you to do this and do that, that you've said, no, nah, I'm not going to do it? Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Even now, are there things that God has told you to do that you're still refusing to do? Or have you become altogether deaf to his calling in your life? Maybe you haven't heard from God in a very long time. Maybe you're, you've blocked your ears so much that you can't hear anything that he says anymore. I hope you're not in that situation. Let me give you some examples. Has the Lord asked you, maybe, in time past, to be reconciled to someone that you've wronged? Maybe you've wronged someone in the past. Maybe you did something that was wrong. You said the wrong thing. You did the wrong thing. And you know you've done it. But you also know if you go to approach that person, you don't know what the consequences are. You don't know how badly they're going to react. You don't know how, how much um, uh, anger they're going to have towards you. So rather than approach them and tell them that you've wronged them and that you're sorry for it, you avoid them. Hard to say I'm sorry sometimes because you don't know what's going to come your way. Is there someone like that in your life? Or alternatively, is there something that someone's done against you and you've held a grudge for possibly weeks and months and even years where you haven't even told that person what they've done wrong? And they might be thinking that they didn't, had no idea what they've done. But yet you're holding something and you haven't let them know that they've hurt you. Maybe God's called you to be reconciled to them. God was very clear, clear with the Ninevites. God told the Ninevites exactly what they had done wrong. That they had sinned and they had ought against him. They had done things against him. You see, and we, we know that's true because they repented of it. And they said, let's change our ways. Let's turn from our evil ways and, and get rid of the violence that is in our hands. We know that. Now, if God is willing to give the Ninevites a second chance, are you willing to give someone a second chance? Or maybe a third? I know there's a, there's a passage in the Bible. There's a, there's a very simple question that the Apostle Peter asked the Lord in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and he said, um, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? 
And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, are we people of the second chance? Are we people who are willing to give someone a second chance and third chance? Because God does that with us all the time. We need to have or display the same character, the same heart that God has. Understanding that we hold a very privileged position. And you might say, what what privileged position do we hold? That we, you and I, influence, can influence the lives of people by simply forgiving them and giving them another chance. Instead, if we hold a sin against someone, we've locked them in. We have the freedom to forgive today. We have the freedom to humble ourselves and to build people up rather than tear people down. Sometimes we're very quick at burning the bridge. We're very quick at judging and then putting aside and not wanting anything to do with this person anymore because they've done something wrong. Let me ask you a question. Would the Lord be like that? The third option here is that are you willing to give yourself a second chance? Some of you have even given up on yourselves. Some of you have repented or you feel as if you've repented so many times it's not worth repenting anymore. And you've given up on your, on your ability for God to use you. You've given up on your worth at all in God's kingdom. You believe in your heart that God can't use you anymore because you've failed him so many times. Can I just mention something to you? That's a bigger sin than the other ones. That's a sin in itself where you actually choose your own destiny rather than allowing God to choose it for you. That sort of judgment upon yourself condemns you to a life of inactivity in God's kingdom. It condemns you to a life of no results, no walk, no fruit. Does God deserve fruit in your life? Yes, he does. He deserves it each and every day. Now, if you don't have any faith that you can do anything, then you're actually going against what God's word says about you, that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If you say, nah, there's nothing good in me, I can't do anything anymore, I'm going to restrain, I'm going to pull back, and I'm not going to do anything. Not in church, not out of church, I'm not going to bother to read the Bible, I'm not going to bother to grow as a Christian, then you are disobeying God directly. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are there people in your life that you haven't, that need a second chance, that you can influence and help to build, that you can restore relationships with? Or have you given yourself another chance? I dare say God's waiting for you for that. Second lesson I want you to understand is obedience towards God's word doesn't depend on how you feel about it. That's what we find with Jonah. Jonah still didn't like the Ninevites. And you might say, well, Jonah was wrong not to like the Ninevites. That's beside the point. Jonah's Jonah's opinion of the Ninevites should not affect the way he obeys God. And it didn't. The first time it did, the first time he allowed his emotions and his his own um, opinions to actually make him disobey God. This time, he still had his opinions, he still had his emotions, but you know something? He put them behind the word of God, not in front of. And this is what God calls us to do. Sometimes obeying the word of God is difficult, is it not? Sometimes it's very bitter to swallow God's word and say, I'm going to do it. But God has called us to simply obey, regardless of how you feel about something. The blessing is not in the feeling. Some of us get trapped in this idea that, you know, if I do something good, I do, it, I do something good because I get a blessing because I feel good about it. But you know something? It doesn't always work like that. It may work like that sometimes. But many times, doing the right thing will make you feel bad. And you say, hang on a sec. 
Shouldn't doing the right thing make me feel good? No. It doesn't have to. Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites. Yeah, he did. Did Jesus want to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world? I'll tell you now, he prayed and, and sweated beads of blood because of what he was about to go through. Was that a pleasant experience for our Lord? No. It wasn't something that, that, that came naturally. He'd never experienced sin before. He was about to be beaten, whipped and hung on a cross and then at the same time bearing the sins of the world. Did he like that experience? Did he feel good while he was doing it? I'm telling you, no. His own father turned his face away from him. It wasn't a pleasant experience. In our culture, we often get caught in this trap of what I do has to give me a good feeling. We're so trapped in this, this idea in our, in, our, in our society that everything we do has to revolve around making me feel good. It doesn't always work. And Jonah's a good example of what God expects. Jonah's feelings, he realised, should have been put second, not first. And in the same way, our feelings should never come first. If God tells us to be doing something, we should obey, regardless of how it makes me feel. When you're at work, if you're a boss at work, and you have workers there, and you have to be able to manage them, you know sometimes you have to lay off people? You have to be able to choose who you lay off and who you don't. Is that a pleasant experience? No, but for the good of the, of the business and all the other people that are working there, sometimes you have to make some very hard decisions. And sometimes when someone's been delinquent or done the wrong thing and you have to lay them off, approaching them and saying, listen, I have to let you go because you have done some pretty bad things over here. That's not an easy thing to do. Is church discipline easy? I'm telling you, no. When you see a brother or a sister and, you, and you, you approach them and, and you're hoping the best for them and then they still do wrong and then you have to go and discipline them, that's one of the most difficult things to do. It pains you, it hurts you. But is it for their good? Yes. Does God call you to do it? Yes. Let's continue. Verse 4. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Note, we don't know, because he describes the city as a city of three days' journey. What does that mean? Does it mean three days to walk around the city? Three days to walk through the city? Three days to go in and around the city while he's preaching? We don't exactly know. We know there were roughly about, I think it was 140, 150,000 inhabitants in that city. We know that much. And we do know that in verse 4 it says, he began to enter into the city a day's journey and then he began to preach. That's what we do know. Another thing we do know, or we can safely assume, is that this wasn't the only proclamation. You know when it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown? That wasn't just what he said. There was a lot more that was said. Because it would be funny to walk around a whole, a whole city and just keep on repeating the same phrase over and over again without explaining to people what, why it was being overthrown. We can safely assume that that phrase was the beginning of his message. We can also assume that these words weren't the only content of his message. The call to repentance needed to come with specifics about what they did wrong. So they understood where they had offended a holy and righteous God. They had to understand what they needed to repent of. And we see that they did understand and they were told what they needed to repent of. Because in verse 8 it says, Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Now how did they figure that one out unless they were told? They knew because Jonah said, you are going to be judged because you've done this and that. Another question you might have in your head is, why 40 days? Why would God, why would Jonah say, in 40 days this place is going to be destroyed? Well, we know Jonah's message started one day into his journey into the city. And he began to preach. But my understanding, and this is maybe just my opinion, 
I think God gave them 40 days to determine whether their repentance was genuine or whether it wasn't. You see, it's easy for someone to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And for that sorry to last about one or two days. Or for that sorry to last about a week. Much harder to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and change your whole lifestyle and make it last 40 days. Isn't it? When you're used to doing something day in, day out a certain way. Genuine repentance, we find, is lasting. It's something else I've learned in business. I mean, the cleaning business, those of you don't don't know. And cleaners, are, I love them all. It's a hard job they do. It's, you know, it's, it's unsupervised, oftentimes it's unthanked. But sometimes cleaners do certain things that are either silly or neglectful. They try to cut corners. Okay? And they get themselves into a habit of cutting corners over and over and over again. So much so that then it reflects on their work that they've done. And you can see it, the result. So then you go to the cleaner and you say, listen, um, you know, you've been missing out on that particular corner and it's looking really bad at the moment. I want you to make sure you focus on that corner and you build that into your thing because it says here that you have to take care of that corner as well. Now let me ask you a question. If the, if the cleaner says, yes, 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 how am I going to know that's going to be done that he's actually taken it seriously. Do I go the next day and see if it's cleaned? No. What I found is that they might maintain it for a week and then they may go back to what they were doing before because no one's there to watch them. And you know it's not genuine. If they do it for two weeks, it's looking promising. But if they've done it for a month and they've maintained that thing and built it into their schedule and they're running with it, you know something, after, after a month, you can be pretty sure that they're going to keep going with it. In the same way, a genuine change of heart, and this is what we're talking about with repentance, when it comes to the things of God, you can't see straight away. I've seen, I've seen teenagers come back from camp. You know, the SWAT camps and the summer camps and all that, and they come back all excited. And they want to do all this stuff for God and they get all excited and then, you know, a week later or two weeks later, they're back to what they were doing before. You see, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion. If the emotion is what's driving you, then it won't last because it's hard to maintain an emotion. It dies. But if the repentance, if the decision is genuine, it lasts. It will continue even when the emotion doesn't, isn't there anymore. We're marrying two people over here. And I won't give you their sermon just yet. But you know when you get married, it's all beautiful. You know, you've got your honeymoon coming up and everything's just hunky-dory. And then when you, you, know, when you settle down and, and you, know, you have to start working and doing all the things that married couples do and then... Some things go wrong, you know, sometimes. And, you know, sometimes the feeling isn't there. Sometimes the feeling isn't there. That, you know, that special feeling, that, that, you know, the butterflies in the stomach sort of feeling. If your marriage relies on your emotions, your marriage fails. If your marriage is built on a commitment, a genuine commitment, it lasts. That's why so many marriages fail in our society. Once my partner stops me feeling good or stops making me feel good, then the whole thing falls apart and I'm gone. I'm out the door. This is the same with repentance. If repentance lasts, it doesn't rely on emotion. It doesn't grow very quickly and then die a, a very quick death as well. It's genuine and it lasts. You know something? If you can keep something going daily for 40 days there's a very good chance it's going to last. And this is, I'll just, I'll tell you something here. This is not a rule that fits every circumstance. It's not every time, if, if, you, don't, if you make yourself a thing and say, you know, I'll tick off my 40 days and then at 40 days I'm going to be, it doesn't work like that. But this is just a general guide. And in this specific case, in Nineveh's case, God was satisfied that after 40 days that their repentance was genuine and he chose not to destroy them. Out of verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. 
For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? I'm not sure how the beasts were going to be crying out to God. Um, I'm not sure why he covered the beast with sackcloth, but maybe it was a general, a general thing that, that they wanted to show, him, show God as far and wide as they could over all the influence they had that they were truly repentant of what they did. Now let me just go through a couple of these things. Fasting. Why did they fast for? Why would you someone fast when you know someone's going to someone's going to judge you? Well, basically the purpose of fasting, which we see practiced a lot in the Old Testament, was to show God that you're very serious about your response to him. That you're serious about something. And you want him to know and understand that you're willing to forego a basic necessity in your life. You're willing to forego the pleasures or the satisfaction of your own flesh so you can focus on him and you can focus on the message that he's given you. It was an opportunity to let go of earthly pleasure, deny your flesh. It was a demonstration and an opportunity to show God that you're serious about serving and obeying him. And in this case, about repentance. Sackcloth. Is that cloth a, a, a nice garment to wear? Is it smooth on the skin? No. Actually, it's quite itchy, I'd say. I don't think it would be very comfortable to wear sackcloth. Ever seen a sack of potatoes? Yeah, it's a bit the same. Sackcloth was often used in the Old Testament as a sign, fundamentally as a sign of mourning, that you were sad about something. It was an outward sign to everyone else and a reminder to yourself that you had been brought low, that you were in a miserable state. And ashes, or sitting in ashes, were also a sign of death and destruction, often associated with mourning. We find when David specifically sinned against God by numbering the people of, um, of Israel, that God had sent an angel to destroy, to smite them. Not just him, but the people of Israel as well. And David realised that he'd done wrong. And so what he did was put aside his royal robes, threw on the, uh, on the sackcloth and started to mourn before God to show that he was really sorry about what he'd done. When Mordecai, in the book of Esther, found out the plans to destroy his people, they all put on sackcloth and mourned. Why? Because they wanted to show God their deep sorrow. They wanted to, this was a constant reminder for them that they were in mourning about what was happening. This passage also says they cried mightily unto God and turned from their wicked ways and from the violence that was in their hands. And look, what we see the Ninevites do is a picture of true repentance. What does repentance include? Well, repentance by a rough textbook definition says that it's a change of mind about sin and about God which results from a turning from sin to God. Is that fair enough? It's a change of mind about those things. You understand what sin is, you believe God and you say I'm going to turn from that to him. That's basically what it means. Genuine repentance affects the whole life of a person. Not just the outward life, not just a temporary life, but a permanent change. Repentance. I've got four things that repentance includes, okay? Number one, repentance includes a sinner taking the blame for his sinful condition before God. You take the blame. You say, yes, I'm wrong. I was wrong there. I understand I was wrong. And what you do is you side with God against yourself. You side with God and say, yes, what you're saying is true. I'm the one who was wrong. I'm the one who did bad. I'm the one who broke your command. A penitent or someone who's remorseful about their sin or sorrowful about their sin blames no one else for their condition. Do we see that happen these days? 
No, we see people who make mistakes and they look quickly to everyone else to blame. It was my dad, my mum, my friend, my co-worker. It was the government that made me do it. It was something else. It was the alcohol that was in my system. It was the drugs. It was whatever it was. It was my upbringing. It was the area that I grew up in. It was the job that I've got. It was the stress that I'm under. That is not taking the blame. Our culture is fantastic at that. Looking for every possible reason to point the finger out there rather than point it in here. A genuine, genuine repentance means that you say, it's my fault. And it's also a condemning of yourself under God's eternal wrath because you deserve it. You understand that you deserve it. And thus we find the people of Nineveh, from the king all the way down, accepted the blame. They said, we've done wrong. It's our fault. We broke God's commands. They believed, Sarah says they believed God. They believed his message. They sided with him against themselves. They said, you're right. Rather than, it's not our fault. They believed God and accepted their guilty condition. If they had not accepted their guilty condition and not accepted their guilt or their uh, believed God, Jonah would have been probably thrown in prison or killed. But we know he wasn't. So the first thing, the sinner takes the blame for his sinful condition. Second, repentance includes sorrow for sin. Genuine sorrow. Because if you know you've hurt someone really bad, if you have any care for that person, do you feel sorry about it? Of course you do. Of course sorrow has to come into hurting someone else. And sin hurts and breaks God's heart. So understanding sin or accepting your, your guilt in sin makes you feel sorry for what you've done. You feel sorrow. 2 Corinthians 17 says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Godly sorrow. There is a sorrow where you actually accept that you've done wrong and you're sorry about it. Matthew 5.4 says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Hey, that's a good opportunity to mourn when you've realised you've done something wrong. The people of Nineveh showed genuine sorrow for their sin by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. I don't know how long they did that for, but it must have been quite a show for a whole city of 140,000 people or so to be wearing sackcloth and to be mourning about what they had done. The third point is that repentance leads to confessing of sin. You openly confess it. Hiding nothing, a sinner owns his sin and then pours out his heart to God. You pour it out and you say, I was wrong. You don't just keep it to yourself. You don't hide it and lock it away in a closet. You confess it to God. When you do something wrong to someone else, do you go to that person and say, I'm sorry? What good does it do if you know you've done something wrong against someone else, you've accepted you've done something wrong against someone else, you're sorry about it, and you never go and tell them? Doesn't do much good. Repentance leads to confessing of sin. The Ninevites confess their sin to God by fasting and crying mightily to God and asking Him for His forgiveness. And the final thing is that true repentance leads to forsaking sin. Letting it go. Putting it behind. A repentant sinner determines not to return to the thing that hurt someone else in the first place. In this case, specifically God. The people of Nineveh forsook their sin. It was evident from the person who was right at the top, the king, to all the way down. It says they turned from their evil ways and from the violence that was in their hands. The Ninevites displayed what we would call genuine repentance. There was evidence for it. It, was, it. it wasn't just cheap talk. It came with results. So Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 finishes with, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of, their, of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. The bottom line with this whole thing 
is that God did not destroy them after the, the 40 days because they showed, they displayed genuine repentance. Isn't it amazing how a Gentile nation like the Ninevites, who were classed as one of the most evil people throughout history, are able to teach us today what genuine repentance is about because their whole city turned around. Now, I don't know how long that repentance, maybe the next generation went back into that sin, and they probably did. But there was genuine repentance among those people. From them we learn what true biblical repentance is all about. A convicted and convinced sinner takes his place before God as justly condemned. He hates his sin, longing to be free from it. He sorrows over his sin, determining not to return to it. And he shows his repentance by by walking in the paths that God has set before him. That's genuine repentance. Now let me ask you a question. Does repentance fit into the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Is that sort of repentance what God is talking about today? And is it consistent throughout the Bible? Is that message about repentance consistent? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5 refers to John the Baptist. Okay? Now most of us know that John the Baptist preached the message of repentance. But let's look at what John expected from the repentance. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptised of him in Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. The word meat is worthy of repentance. Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. John expected that when someone repented and he baptised them, that their lives would change, that there was a difference in them after. He knew that these guys, oftentimes the Pharisees and Sadducees, were playing political games, trying to get on the good side of the people as well and trying to play politics. And he warned them about that sort of, that sort of repentance, that if their repentance wasn't real, they would still be judged. And he said to them, make sure that you show works or fruits that are worthy of the repentance you've just proclaimed in front of everyone else. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Luke 24, 46. Jesus is risen. Jesus is telling his disciples what they will do in the future and now. Luke 24, 46 says, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Is repentance... Is repentance Built into the gospel message? Yes, it is. It's for all nations, for all time. It's the gospel message starts with repentance. Turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Let's see what Paul says about repentance. Is it? Does Paul include repentance in his gospel message? Acts 17.30 says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That is, all the Gentile nations, all the world. Because he hath appointed a day 
in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Did you, did you hear that message? What was the message that Jonah gave to the Ninevites? That in a short amount of time, God will judge you, God will destroy you if you don't repent. Look at this message. He says that all men everywhere need to repent because God has appointed a day of what? Judgment. The message hasn't changed. The difference now is we know who's doing the judging. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. He's been appointed and God confirmed that he is the judge, that he is the one who will judge every man throughout all time because God's raised him from the dead and proved who he was. What was Paul's expectation for a person who repented? Was it the same? Did he expect works as well after? Turn to Acts chapter 26 verse 19. Just forward a few chapters. When he's giving his defence in front of King Agrippa. Let's see if Paul's expectation was different to John the Baptist's presentation or expectation of repentance. Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he says in verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. What heavenly vision? When Jesus showed himself to, to, to Paul and says in verse 20, But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Is there an expectation we should have when a person says they've been born again? Yes. Does God expect a change of life? Yes, he does. Paul expected it. John the Baptist expected it. Our Lord expected it. Expects to see a change. In fact, Jesus even says in the, in the book of Revelation, he tells church, the church to repent of their works. So we see a common theme. We see a common definition. We see a consistency in God's word from the beginning to the end about what repentance is all about. Does the gospel message include repentance? Yes, it does. Do we hear repentance being preached? Not really. We don't hear much repentance being preached today in the, in the, in the churches. It's a little bit unpalatable to admit you're a sinner, to be sorry because it doesn't go with our human nature. We like to feel good about ourselves. So what most of the churches have done is that they've made this nice little message, chopped out the bits that are a little bit scary, that might hurt people a little bit in terms of bruising their egos a bit, and they've made it palatable for everyone to take. Are there plenty of people who, who believe they might be saved but are showing no fruits? You bet. There are plenty out there who say, I'm born again, but live exactly the same lifestyle they're living before and living the same lifestyle they're living, they're living as the world is living. No difference between them and an unsaved person. The Bible says that someone who's genuinely repented shows fruits, does works. Not that the works and the fruits save you, but the works and the fruits are a, a product of what's real. In Acts chapter 20, it's verse 21, it says, Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. You can't really separate the two, although there is a distinction between the two. But have one without the other is very doesn't fit. It's like having a coin with only one side. There's a man who once said, I don't know the source of it. If we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. I like that. Because every day we know we've done something wrong. Every day we, we, um, we, we don't repent if we're not saved and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another day we're guilty as sinners that we're not saved, that we're useless to the kingdom of God, that we don't give God the glory, that we don't uh, build ourselves up in the knowledge and the love of God, that we another day we've lost 
to become more like Jesus. Another day we've lost to reach those who are around us who, are, who aren't saved and who are struggling in sin. Another day that's lost that we haven't lifted up God's name who deserves our praise every day. Let me ask you where you find yourself today. You call yourself a Christian? Do you have things that you need to repent of today? You understand what repentance is now. You have no excuse. Are there things that you know God doesn't want you to do? There are things that you know hurt God and break his heart. You're his child. If you do something wrong, you break his heart. Just as your children break your hearts. Are there those things that keep you away from having a pure and perfect relationship with your Saviour? If there are, repent. Repent and show the fruits of it. Be genuine about your repentance. Understand how bad sin actually is. Understand that it took a man hung on a cross, bleeding to death, in agony because of your sin and my sin. Understand what he went through for you and for me. You personally. Understand how bad sin is. If you understand how bad sin is, how can you go back to it? Spend time before the Lord. And if you have to put on sackcloth, if you have to sit in ashes to remind yourself where you should be, then do it. If you have to mourn for your sin, do it. Show God how sorry you are for your sin. Be genuine about your, your repentance. Make the call. Don't let it go. Because every day you let it go only makes matters worse. And if you're not saved this morning, and now you understand what's, what repentance is about, there's a reason to repent. And the reason is that you've offended a holy God. You've broken his heart. You've rebelled against his commandments and his authority and who he is. And there's an opportunity for you today to actually say, God, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed. I understand that I'm a sinner. I am deeply sorry for what I've done. And I want to turn to you and turn away from this sin that has held me in chains all my life. God wants to free you from those things. God provided a way by sending his only son to that cross so that you don't have to bear the punishment of those sins. God's ready to give you a new life. The question today is, are you ready to receive it? Don't waste another day. God bless you.